Good afternoon. Thank you for being here today. You had a choice. Appreciate you being here. I hope, I hope you felt the spirit move this morning. He's here in this place. Music lifting us up before the throne, and I'm grateful for that. By the way, you uh, probably noticed the balloons on the way in, some red, gold, and white. Southwestern's back officially. Uh, Southwestern students in the room today, anybody? Everybody's back? Yeah, I see you, see you. Uh, returning students moved back in on Sunday, week full of classes. You're here, we're thankful for that. We are officially in all capacities back up and running for the school year. And uh, I also had the chance this week to hang out with some of our uh, CTA seniors on senior retreat. Got to take the boat out and run around on the lake for a couple of days with some kids. Let me tell you, after two days of tubing and wakeboarding and kneeboarding, uh, it was about everything that we could do yesterday afternoon to get them back onto the shore and then back to their cat. Just, ah, oh, so tired. But it was a lot of fun to hang out with our academy seniors. I see a lot of parents here today of some of those seniors. A lot of fun to hang out with your kids. Um, keep our seniors in your prayer. Um, they're, they're leading at Chisholm Trail Academy this year. Um, they're about to jump into a week of prayer this coming week. They're, they're going to be leading out on. They're, they're our leaders, our spiritual leaders for Chisholm Trail Academy. So keep them, please, keep them in your prayer um, this year. And last but not least, I want, I want to share a thank you particularly to our, our worship team and our media team. They put in a lot of work behind the scenes and I'm thankful for that to, to Lisa and to Ruben for the teams that y'all lead. Um, we often don't notice when everything goes really well because we're taken by the moment and spirit's there. We notice when things don't go so well, okay? So if you would, if you see somebody with a headset on or somebody on stage, Share a thank you with them. Share your appreciation for, for their ministry. It means a tremendous amount. Uh, and I also want to thank George. He was running around with the camera today. The bumper video that we have, kind of get our mind on in the sermon topic. He's the George Velez, is the mastermind behind that. And his wife, Lizzie, does a lot of our graphic design. About 95% of the things you see on the screen are done by Lizzie and George. And so I'm so, so thankful to, to both of them for their behind the scenes ministry in that way. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today, like we have been for the past couple of weeks. We're going to be starting here in verse 24 in a moment. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 is where we're going to start. And today, the, 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 the parable that we're looking at is a, is a little bit different. It's a little bit backwards in how Jesus uh, approaches the, the concept that he wants us to gain today. So I'll illustrate it this way. I normally don't like kind of disembodied stories that could have happened anywhere. And pastor, you probably made it up anyway, but I'm going to uh, just kind of uh, wager on this one. Roll with me. It'll, it'll make sense in a moment. Imagine in your mind, a church bulletin board. And on those, you know, you see the regular listings of houses for rent and this ministry is coming up. But on that board, someone has put the classic line, Jesus is the answer. You've seen that before on a bumper sticker. Maybe you wrote that on an exam, right? When you, your professor's like, this is algebra, <laughs> right? Uh, but Jesus is the answer. You hear that? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Well, someone put this up on this nondescript bulletin board in some church somewhere. And about a week later, another note popped up on the board right underneath it that said, yes, Jesus is the answer. But what is the question? Think about that for a moment. Jesus is the answer, but what is the question? 
And today in the passage and parable that we're looking at, Jesus provides for us the answer. We can say yes and amen because he doesn't explain all of his parables. He often just kind of drops them and leaves them. We have to scratch our heads and reconstruct the story. And what are we trying to get out of this? Today, as we read this parable, Jesus will offer to us the answer. Our quest this morning is to understand the question. What question is Jesus trying to answer with the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds? So let's jump into scripture. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the workers slept, his enemies came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed, it's full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. He says, no, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them and to put the, put the wheat into the barn. Classic story. You've heard it before. Thank you to Mrs. Jess for giving us an introduction with our children this morning and sharing the story again. You've heard the parable of the wheat and tares. And it makes logical sense to kind of go down through. But what does this story mean? Is this a, a working document for church governance? That as we see the wheat and the wheat, this is how we approach weeds in the midst of us? Or perhaps it's just a case study in an uh, an agricultural textbook that Jesus was referring to from the time. What do these symbols represent? These parables are stories. They They have a meaning and each part has its own place. And we can be very thankful this morning that Jesus provides those answers. So jump down with me to verse 36. Remember last week, we covered the two parables in between uh, this one and the two we did last week. And this particular parable is so difficult for the disciples to understand that they ignore the other two parables. They're like, yeah, 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 we get that. But Jesus, tell us a little bit about the wheat and the wheat. So let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. Then leaving the crowds aside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. Okay, got that down, write that down. Okay, we got it. The field is the world. Okay, got that. The seed represents, the the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. Got that. The The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. Okay, keep going. Let us know Jesus. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Could Jesus get more clear than this? (laughs) He didn't say they're like this or it might be that. He was very clear to delineate that the son of man, which by the way, was Jesus' favorite name for himself. He loved to be called the son of man. It reverberates all throughout scripture. The son of man is the farmer. The farmer is the son of man. That's Jesus. The fields, that's the world, the good seed, people of the kingdom, enemy, the devil, the bad seed, the people of the devil. Harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Jesus gives us the answers to the parable. But remember, our quest today is to understand what is the question. So 
let's backwards engineer this. Jesus has given us the answers. What if we plug the answers into the parable? So we're going to go back through Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Uh, but I have a little bit of a different version to share with you. You see, it's the PMG version, the Pastor Michael Gibson version. Um, just wanted to, be, wanted to be clear. I'm inserting some things into the text because Jesus said that these is, this is what these things were. So uh, we'll read down through the, the story again, 24 through 36. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like the son of man who planted kingdom people in the world. But that night as the workers slept, the devil came and planted evil people among the kingdom people, then slipped away. When the kingdom people began to grow and produce grain, the evil people also grew. The son of man's workers went to him and said, Sir, the world where you planted the kingdom people is full of evil. Where did all the evil come from? Changes the parable. All of a sudden, it's clear what the question is. Where did all the evil come from? And it's the classic story of human existence. If there is such a good God in heaven, why is there so much evil in the world? Scholars use a, a big word by the term theodicy to talk about the vindication of God's goodness in the face of pervasive evil. Put very simply, why is there so much suffering in this world? If God is who God says he is, why does evil continue to be perpetuated in this world? Why are there weeds in the first place? You don't blame the workers, right? This doesn't make sense. Why? Where did all of them come from? And Jesus, through the farmer, who is the son of man, replies to them in this way. Matthew chapter 13, verse 28. An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. An enemy has done this. In these five words, Jesus addresses the problem of evil. It's about as clear as it comes. Where does evil come from or where, where does all this evil come from? An enemy has done this. It's Jesus' response to the age-old question. When it comes to evil, there's someone else besides God that's perpetuating evil. Micah turned 10 months old on Thursday. Like he's gone from like little baby to little boy. He's just crawling all over the place. He desperately wants to walk. And, uh, you know, as he's been growing, we've been doing his doctor's appointments and his check-ins, right? And we go to the doctors in certain months, he needs to have particular shots. And so we go to the doctor and the visit, the nurse comes in at the end to give him the shots. And it's a wonderful, pleasant experience up until that point. Some of you know, nurse pulls out the needle, goes right into the thigh, and all of a sudden he realizes that the nice, pleasant experience we've been having is not all that it's cracked up to be, to put it lightly. Like he's, like he's fairly even keeled, but there's a moment where you see the pain cross his face. And he looks back at Melissa and I, and the question in his mind, I know it is, is why? <laughs> and we look lovingly back into his eyes and we say, Micah, an enemy has done this. We haven't actually done it, but you know, it's thought that crosses the mind. Like an enemy has done it. Like the nurse is wonderful, fantastic. We love nurses, need you in the field. 
But to Micah, that's what it feels like. Parents, you, mom and dad, you were supposed to be someone who, who cared for me. And this is happening. And all that we can respond is with a loving embracing. It's going to be okay. This pain will not last. It's often the last thing to arrive, but the first thing to go. It's going to be okay. An enemy has done this. And somehow, this farmer, Jesus says, is the son of man himself has said enough in these five words. That for all of the waxing eloquently about why evil has happened in this world, Jesus sums it up in five words, an enemy has done this. This profound yet simple explanation somehow immediately makes sense. And the challenge that we have is that Thinking about the kingdom of heaven, I'm sure the disciples had it as well. They're looking at the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is talking about this good and wonderful, amazing kingdom of heaven that's a a new way to live that's full of grace and it's full of love and acceptance, all of these things. If the kingdom is come and the kingdom is good, it should have an ever broadening jurisdiction of goodness. But you and I both know that even though the kingdom has come and it's established here in this physical place and it's in your hearts that there's still evil in the world. There's still challenges that we face on a daily basis. And we raise the question towards heaven, why, why all this evil? And Jesus looks back at us and says, an enemy has done this. It's not within my heart to do this to you. An enemy has done this. Like how C.S. Lewis puts it in the book, Christian Reflections, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That there is a back and forth between the powers of good and the powers of evil. And it's played out in your life and in my life. And it's not fair, but it's the world that we live in. Like how John Peckham puts it, he used to teach here at Southwestern and had the privilege of being a student here and at Andrews Theological Seminary. Fantastic systematic theologian. I think one of the uh, greatest theological minds in our Seventh-day Adventist church today. And he says this in his book, Theodicy of Love, page 131. We can account for why God might refrain from preventing even horrendous evils without justifying those evils themselves or attempting to provide the specific reasons why God acts or refrains from acting as he does. In short, This theodicy of love maintains that this world is not supposed to be this way. We can confidently claim that either directly or indirectly, an enemy has done this. This resonates with your heart and with mine, that the world that we live in today is not supposed to be the way that it is. An enemy has done this. So, the natural question about finding out the reason behind evil and why evil is perpetuated, is to ask then, what shall we do with said evil in the world? Back to the workers talking to the farmer in verse 28. An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. And so the workers craft an idea. Ah, if there's weeds in the field, shouldn't we pull the weeds out? Let's just, let's just, let's just rip them out. The farmer replies, verse 29. No, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. In verse 30, 
Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them and put the wheat into the barn. Oh, by the way, remember, harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. So let them both grow together until the end of the world and I'll tell the angels to sort out the, the bad people, the evil people and the good people. Hmm. So now this story is not framed in our immediate context, although some scholars interpret it this way. So I don't think Jesus is using the story in this way. He's not talking about together as a body. He's very clear in other portions of scripture about how we deal with differences between ourselves. But notice, he says, let it, let it grow to the harvest. Let this go to the end. And uh, think about this. If you were a Middle Eastern farmer around Jesus' time and you had an enemy, like none of you would have an enemy. I, I see it in your faces, right? Well, let's just imagine that you would. The enemy would sow weeds in your fields. And we're not talking about weeds that pop up in our lawns in Texas. You know, those like nasty sticker birds and uh, just that are just ornery. It's like, if you talk about why evil, right? Little stickers in your socks and shoes and then somehow in your carpets and you keep being reminded to take your shoes off before you walk on the carpet. Anyways, it wouldn't be those kinds of weeds. The weeds that would be sown in the wheat fields would resemble almost to a T the actual wheat. And so as they grew and developed, the, the differences were subtle. They would be almost imperceptible. And by the time you'd actually notice that there was weeds in the fields, if you were to pull them out, it would damage your entire crop of wheat. You have to let the whole thing grow together. To act too early will do more damage than if you wait until the end. Remember, Jesus gives us the answer. What's the question? What do we do with evil? That's the question. This complex system in this field as the, as the roots are intertwined together. Everything is joined. It makes us realize what N.T. Wright writes in the book, Matthew for Everyone. God's sovereign rule of the world isn't quite such a straightforward thing as people sometimes imagine. That if there's evil, it needs to immediately be stopped. Like, yeah, absolutely. But there's more complexity to the human relationship with one another and the, and the powers that be. Because at the, at the core of this story is the grace of a farmer who wants to yield as much crop as possible. And at the core of this story is the heart of a God who wants to welcome as many people as he can into the kingdom. It's, will you trust me with the process? That's the question. John Peckham again, The Odyssey of Love, page 56. Here Christ explicitly depicts a conflict between himself and the devil. He sows, see, he, he sows evil and sets, who sows evil and sets God to be blamed for it. Such devil-sown evil is temporarily allowed because to prematurely uproot evil would result in irreversible collateral damage to the good, the weak. God says, if I act too early, if I act too early, it's gonna mess up the whole thing. Because at the end of the day, in the, the core of the cosmic conflict, the great controversy, the battle is not over power. If the battle's over power, God wins, like hands down. He can snap his fingers and deal with all of this. No, the battle is over character. Because the devil 
has told us a lie about who God is. And if God were act any such a way that would make us think that what the devil has said is credible, then it's over. And think about this for a moment. Scripture alludes to the fact that sin will be no more. That in eternity, when we live, amen is right. In eternity, when, when we live, sin will never pop up again. How can that be so? Because are, are, we, are we changed and just completely inoculated to sin? Will there always be a question or a thing of like, oh, be careful, don't go, don't go too far. And then we get kind of into the legalism battle that we already have today. No, God's character through the cosmic conflict, the great controversy will be utterly and completely vindicated. The reason that he leaves the evil for now is that he lets history play out. He gives you and me free will. He gives the devil free will. And he's got to orchestrate it in his mind how he can respond to all of our different choices to actually give us a choice. There will come a day when the time is up and he who will be holy, she who will be holy, will be holy still. This will be evil, will be evil still. But that day is not today. We have hope. And we must trust God with the process. Uprooting evil too soon will also uproot the good. So how will evil specifically be dealt with? Because if we just got to live in this world now, it kind of sounds like, yeah, there's that one day, but how, what, what's the process? What does Jesus do? Jump with me down to, to verse 40. We'll go 40 through 43. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The son of man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Do you have ears? Should listen. God will deal with evil finally and totally in the end. Praise God, I don't have to deal with it and you don't have to deal with it. There will be hard decision made, decisions made. But praise the Lord, we serve a God who knows everything. He's able to somehow do the calculus to figure out what the end looks like. Our responsibility is not to do the math. Remember, who are we in the story? The good seed that is planted, that grows and produces fruit. That's it. Yeah, there's other places in scripture that talk about the different facets of what we are supposed to be doing as Christians and how we approach evil. But in this story, what we're looking at today our responsibility when it comes to the problem of evil and how it's dealt with is to be planted, to grow, and to produce fruit. Like how C.S. Lewis puts it again, this is in mere Christianity. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise and is calling us to take in a great campaign of sabotage. All we've got to do is grow like wheat. That's it. And hopefully, hopefully we'll have an influence. Hopefully we'll have an impact on the people around us and we'll produce fruit. 
but we're joining Jesus in a campaign of sabotage. Our responsibility is not to meter out how things are going to come in the end and pull judgment on somebody else and like, you're out because of that. Like, there's stuff we've got to deal with as we work through as a family. And we hurt one another and we perpetuate evil against one another. But this bigger problem of evil and the challenges that we face in the, the core of our identity and on our heart, Jesus says he will deal with justly and righteously. You can trust that he will deal with it. The question that we've come to realize, why is there so much evil? An enemy has done, an enemy has done it. How do we respond? Let God take care of it. Trust that God will. He promises. This parable explains how the kingdom can be present in the world while not yet wiping out all opposition. Some people use that as an argument to say, no, how can you serve God? Because he allows this, he allows that. God's not just after the symptoms of sin. God is after a total annihilation of anything that resembles sin, what causes it, and the people that perpetuate it. It's found in the core of the Sermon on the Mount when he's, when he, when he talks about, you've heard it said, you shouldn't uh, commit adultery. Well, I say to you, anyone who looks at someone else is already lusted in their hearts. You shouldn't murder. Let me tell you, you're already murdering someone when you talk slander about their character and lie. God's not after rooting out the symptoms. What God is after is the heart. Yet for a few moments, while the earth continues to turn and before Jesus comes back, evil will still persist. Illustrated this way, and then we'll close. Many of you have had the chance to meet Pastor Abner and his family, and they're sitting up here in the front row. Uh, they moved here from halfway around the world in Palau, served as pastor for administration. And there's about 12 or 13 time zones between here and Palau. It's a whole half of day, right? So Abner was telling me they'd just gotten here. It was a couple of days that they've been here. And, you know, their, their bodies are wired for a time zone that's halfway around the world. And so 2 a.m. in Texas is like 4 o'clock in the afternoon someplace else, right? So they're up one night and both their, their beautiful girls are, are, are awake. Their older daughter, Rior, goes to, he's telling me the story that she goes to the window. She's awake. It's, it, 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 I'm, I'm awake. It should be morning, right? Goes to the window with expectation to pull the curtain back and to see a bright shining sun. And she's met with darkness. Because in 2 a.m. in Texas, it's dark, right? She turns back to Abner, to her dad, not missing a beat. And she says, Daddy, there's a lot of night here. <laughs> and it's true. Because when their internal clocks are calibrated for another time zone that's halfway around the world, their bodies are telling them, we should be experiencing light right now. It should be the day. We're halfway around the world and it's night. You guys over the jet lag yet? Good, good. Here's, here's how it connects to all of this. Our bodies, our souls are calibrated for a different time zone. Our hearts 
say, this is not how this should be. God, there's a lot of night here. There's a lot of evil here. I don't know, what what do I do? And God lovingly comes and says, you were built for another place. And the beautiful part about the early parts of the morning, the darkest part of the morning is that the light of morning is just a few hours away. Though it's dark now, the light will come. And Jesus says, our light will shine. Righteousness will shine. So the invitation to you through this parable is that though we experience evil now, trust in the one who will deal with evil completely in the age to come. And because he's powerful enough to deal with it then, he can deal with it with you right, right here and right now. Know that he is not the one that's perpetuating evil in your life. There's an enemy that has done it. And our call from this parable is to grow as wheat in a field and trust the farmer because he cares for the wheat.